Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History. I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton. In 1995, a woman who called herself Nettie Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just told his story in his own word. Welcome to the second First Friday Sash session. Uh, it is a first of its kind, a book talk by Bo Dewar. Thanks for joining us again at the Society for American Soccer History. If you're interested in joining us, ussoccerhistory.org. Please uh, join us through the website there, as well as check out recent posts. Uh, And as always, uh, this will be recorded and posted on the Society's webpage. I'd like to introduce uh, the secretary uh, of our society, Zach Begalke, who is also a PhD candidate at the Pennsylvania State University. Uh, He will be moderating today's uh, conversation. So I'll turn it over to Zach. Thank you so much, uh, Tom. It's great to be here today. And, uh, you know, uh, first and foremost, I just want to thank everybody here. Please make sure that you're muted while we're in the midst of uh, this initial discussion where we'll have questions and answers a session for questions and answers after we we talk and then um but thank you so much for being here as tom said please check out the website and it's really a pleasure to be here with bo Dewar today he's been covering soccer for decades now i'm sure <laughs> you've all seen his work at you know usa today espn 442 soccer america you know, several great books already out, but we're here specifically today to talk about the newest one that was a project of the pandemic, if you will. Uh, It's 2012, the year that saved women's soccer. Um, For our session today, I first, you know, just want to turn it over to Bo to tell us a little bit about, you know, the book itself and, and his journey toward creating it. So, I'll turn over the floor now, and uh, thank you so much, Bo. Thank you, Zach and Tom, and I'm gonna pop up the um, the slideshow that I have now and show that, and yeah, I don't remember what made me decide, hey, this is the book that I should do. Um, I It had kicked around in my head for a little while, and then, yeah, with the pandemic, I thought, Hmm. Well, I have a little bit less, a little bit more time now because, you know, uh, freelancing slows down a little bit at a time like this. And maybe some players have spare time because they're not playing. So maybe I can get them to uh, contribute. And the idea was to do it as, I say, an oral history. I mean, actually, email is a lot easier because you're not transcribing all the time. You know, there's less room for error. Um, So I got 30 some people uh, to contribute to this. There were a few people I missed out on, and it's kind of a funny thing. When I did my MLS book uh, years and years ago, I actually had an agent tell me, oh, players won't do it unless you pay them. Everybody I talked with, with everybody I contacted, with one exception, uh, was happy to do it. And one person contacted me after the fact saying, why didn't you talk to me? Uh, here, I, I was batting about 600. Uh, there were some players, I think to some extent, once they realized there was going to be an NWSL season, uh, then they started to ramp up a little bit. They weren't quite as interested. 
Uh, the reason I call it the bridge here, uh, you'll see, is that it bridges the gap between the last two uh, professional leagues. And if I can skip ahead, there we go. And yeah, here's the timeline of professional women's leagues. And so you may remember the WSA. That was in 2001, by most metrics, that was a big success. I mean, the Washington Freedom were averaging more than 10,000 fans per game. There are a lot of other places that are averaging more than 5,000. So, you know, those are numbers that people would be happy to see today. Uh, the problem was they spent a ton of money to get there. And at the time, they had the best players in the world, without a doubt. I mean, they got nearly everybody they wanted uh, to be in this league. You know, all the U.S. players, of course, and then uh, some of the best from Germany, some of the best from China, some of the best from Sweden. Uh, it was, without a doubt, the best, play, uh, best league in the world. It might still be the best league the world has ever seen because the European leagues today have some very good teams like Lyon and Wolfsburg, but they don't have a good top-to-bottom league like the WSA was. Unfortunately, they spend a ton of money, and in horrible timing, Right before the Women's World Cup, the one that had been relocated uh, from China to the USA because of the last nasty virus that came out of China, uh, SARS, uh, nobody wanted to go to China, and so it got relocated here. Didn't quite have as much fanfare as 1999 did, uh, but it would have been nice to still have that league around to you know, just keep some continuity going. And they refused to admit that they were going away at first. In 2004, they played a couple of these little festivals where they said, oh, here's the Washington Freedom. Well, really, you know, one group of national team players and other players had been in WSA versus another. You know, there wasn't a lot of rhyme or reason to it. And that wasn't enough to get it going. Now, I put on this timeline, I put those intervening years in black for a reason. That was that was the dark time. Those are the dark ages. And you can see, you know, that's that's a long time. That's five years. Then WPS kept getting postponed. I think at first I heard 2007. Uh, then it was definitely supposed to launch in 2008. But they went back uh, to 2009. And to put some question marks after 2011. And let's see. Let's see what happened there. Well, actually, first, let's. This is the reason I wrote the book. Because you look back, this was from this dark time, 2004 to 2008. And these are all US eligible players. I didn't count, you know, Australians and French players and so forth. Uh, most of these players left the game entirely uh, by the time WPS rolled around in 2009. And the the green says there that uh, those are players who played in the WSA in 2003 and were not capped. But the players who are underlined, Julie Augustiniak, Stacey Burt, Carrie Sarver, uh, and Lindsey Stecker, those were all players who at least had gone to a national team camp. And a lot of those players had the potential to at least challenge for national team spots down the road. The next color grouping, those are all players who were capped at some point and we're playing in the WSA and that it, the players in italics were actually capped before the, uh, 2001. And some of those names, you know, 
Joy Fawcett wasn't going to be on the upside. Neither was Julie Foudy. Uh, neither was that uh, person in there two spaces below Julie Foudy. I'm not sure her name, Maya, Mia, Ham, somebody. So it, that, it, that list includes some people who had been on the national team and they were hardly unknowns. But it also includes some people, the third name on that list is one that sticks out to me. That's Lakeisha Bean. She at one point had a legitimate shot of being the goalkeeper of the future. And so that's a real shame that uh, she wasn't able to continue. Mandy Clements, you might remember uh, trying to plug the WUSA on The Bachelor. Uh, she was on there trying to win the affections of uh, Jesse Palmer, but not trying to win it too hard because Jesse Palmer was no match for Mandy Clements intellectually. Uh, so, but down that list, you know, a lot of pretty good players. Um, then the gray area, that is an interesting list because those are people who were capped between 2000 and 2003, never played in a top flight professional league in the US. Uh, maybe one or two of them went and played in Europe, but for the most part, those were all players who were in college when they were capped. And so, now some of them had catastrophic injuries. Keisha Bell actually never played after 2001. Uh, Nandy Price, who was a really uh, talented prospect, uh, tore up her knees as well. And uh, then you have the great story of Alicia Kramer Rose, uh, who stopped playing for the national team and didn't play in, in uh, didn't play professionally because she didn't want to play on Sundays. Uh, she went to BYU, where they can schedule around Sundays, um, and dropped out for that reason. There is one name I want to point out here. It's not like uh, all these players quit their athletic career. If you look up in that uh, last column, you'll see Shauna Robach. Uh, Shauna Robach became an Olympic medalist, just not in soccer. Uh, she was a silver medalist in the 2006 Olympics in women's bobsled as a driver. Very impressive, uh, very impressive person. So how did we get to this situation? How did we get into uh, a time without top flight league. Uh, 2011 gets a lot of the focus and I'll briefly touch on that, but 2010, you can see how the league was not in very good shape. Uh, you had, you know, the Los Angeles Soul was the best team in the league in 2009. They were upset in the final uh, by Sky Blue and they went to, through the WPS draft and everyone thought things were okay. And then a sale had fallen through. And then what we realized was AEG, of course, Anschutz Entertainment Group, which had propped up MLS for uh, through its start time, had only committed for one year. And they were paying a lot in rent and they'd obviously lost money. And so no wonder the sale fell through. And so there you go. And I do need to quickly plug, if you see at the top, read more at funwhileitlasted.net. If you haven't seen that site, I highly recommend it. It's not just women's soccer. I mean, the person who runs it, uh, Andy Crossley, was an executive with the Boston Breakers uh, women's soccer team. Uh, but he has uh, not just soccer. If you want to know what happened to a lacrosse league or a lacrosse team, he has that. Uh, and he has tons of great information. And when it comes to women's soccer, he has a he has everything, uh, including the curse of Marta, um, because uh, the, the two teams that Marta played for in 2009 was Los Angeles. In 2010, it was FC Gold Pride, the Bay Area team. And that was a ton of money. It was, you know, they were theoretically salary capped, but it was kind of like early MLS where, yeah, they're salary capped, but Jorge Campos gets use of a Ferrari. So this is sort of almost like an off book or, you know, off cap anyway, uh, salary. And she made her teams very good. And FC Gold Pride was a fantastic team. Uh, they won the league and then folded. 
Actually, I should, I should take that back. WPS, to my knowledge, did not have a salary cap, but they were supposed to. They they weren't supposed to be spending five hundred thousand dollars on players. The worst uh, was May two thousand ten. If you followed uh, Division two men's soccer at the time, you'll recognize this name and this story. Jeff Cooper, who was leading the breakaway, or one of the leaders of the breakaway of the USL, and you know going toward what became the new NASL. Uh, what no one knew was that he had basically just turned things over to these uh, brothers from Britain, uh, and they simply stopped paying. And so he had to jump in and say, okay, well, what do we do now? Well, he managed to work out a deal with the NASL or the Division II 2010 League, whatever the name was. I can't remember off the top of my head. It was very long uh, when they did that shotgun marriage of USL and NASL to get through 2010. St. Louis Athletica folded. And so you have players like Hope Solo and Shannon Botts uh, just up for a dispersal graph, uh, six games into the season. That's a bad look. That's like um, the indoor leads in the 2000s. You really don't want to see that happen. It really kills the credibility uh, of the league. And the worst part was the WPS, as far as we could tell, and uh, Tony Antonucci, the commissioner, did talk to the media about this, didn't know that any of this was happening until until they said, hey, we can't make payroll. So December 2010, the Chicago Red Stars uh, suspend operations, and they eventually drop down to the WPSL. We'll get to them. And then 2010, the, one of the most colorful stories in U.S. soccer history, Dan Boroslaw, uh, the late, great Dan Boroslaw, uh, comes in and buys the Washington Freedom. And the Freedom, this is worth noting, they never stopped. They kept going, and they played first an exhibition schedule. They had players like Lindsey Stecker, who I mentioned before, uh, who was working in – I believe she was in Homeland Security, so she stayed in Washington. So she was going. They played first an exhibition season where they would play teams from the W League and teams – actually, a couple of teams from Europe. You know, Somebody might come over and, and play the Freedom, and they had a lot of good players to come through, and Jim Gabara, uh, the – you know, former national team player and indoor player and longtime women's coach was out there and it looked like he was running a youth practice. You know, he's carrying a bag of balls and some cones and things like that. And you had some really good players. In fact, there were players like Lori Lindsay, uh, who is now on the Athletes Council and you may have seen doing commentary on NWSL games. Uh, she essentially played her way into the national team playing in this amateur league because the Freedom did eventually join the W League. So, we get to 2011, and Dan Borislow, um, if you're not familiar with him, I would uh, Google him and maybe add the word deadspin. Um, you could also add the word doer sport because I certainly wrote about that a ton, or you could Google him in my name. Hopefully, some of my ESPN stories are still on um, because for some reason, he took a liking to me. I'm not really sure why. It wasn't like I was particularly nice to him, but he would um, – you know, he would call me when something was going on. In fact, um, I found out that WPS had suspended operations in early 2012 when I was making my only attempt to learn how to ski. It didn't go well. I went in for lunch, checked my BlackBerry, which at the time, you know, was, you know, state-of-the-art phone, and there was a message from Dan Borislav saying, did you hear the lead suspended operations? Oh, boy. So I had to go write about it. And what happened was that uh, Boris, they were down to six teams already, and they cut Magic Jack, which 
Dan Barstow had renamed the Washington Freedom when he moved them to South Florida. He named it after one of his inventions. And so, you know, they were down the stage. Then the league said, well, we're terminating you. And they were down to five. U.S. soccer at first said, well, we're not going to sanction you with five. They managed to work it out and they managed to work out something with Boris Lowe. This was hilarious. They were going to turn Magic Jack into essentially the Harlem Globetrotters and they were going to play exhibition games so he could keep playing, but they wouldn't be in WPS. The deal fell apart. People blame everyone else. Uh, the league said that U.S. soccer said they couldn't do it. Boris Lowe said, you, that's baloney. You were just taking me for a ride. But fortunately, some teams were already working on what happened next. And what happened next? This is one of the two leads to note. Um, and have to reiterate here, there were two amateur leads. You could enter a professional team in those leads. And one of these, the Western New York Flash, actually competed uh, as an amateur team in 2010. In the, or completed as a professional team in the W League in 2010. They won, of course. Uh, then they moved into uh, WPS and they had a fantastic team, won the championship. They were really, really good. So you had these teams that wanted to keep going. And so the Breakers and the Flash both played in the 2011 WPS season and they said, well, let's keep going. And Chicago Red Stars bounced back up. They had played in the WPSL. And so this league was under the auspices of the WPSL and essentially just another upper division in it, you might say. And they had to scrounge for teams a little bit because the Flash still happy to play professionally. The Breakers still happy to pay, uh, play professionally. Uh, the Red Stars were professionally run and had players who were on the national team pool like Laurie Kolopny. Um, but they were technically an amateur team again they, because they used college players. And you know, if you're not familiar, the W League and the WPSL, just like the NPSL and um, USL League 2, I guess, I lose track. Uh, but those are mostly summer leagues for college eligible players. And to be college eligible, you have to be playing on an amateur team. You can play against professionals, you just cannot play on a professional team. Uh, consult the NCAA and ask why that makes any sense. I don't know. Uh, there were three pretty good clubs from the WPSL uh, that jumped in. Uh, Chesapeake Charge, FC Indiana, and New England. And then two teams, the Philadelphia Fever, completely, just completely from scratch. And that was run by Matt Driver, who you may know from his efforts to start uh, the Neo-American Soccer League uh, in the same decade. And the New York Fury actually built upon an existing club. There was a longstanding youth club called the Fury or Albertson Fury, and they had a team called the Long Island Fury that played in WPSL. They just, um, they just said, well, let's form the New York Fury and join this. And they were the other professional team in this league. They were coached by Paul Riley, who had coached the Philadelphia Independents in WPS. They had a lot of former Philadelphia Independents players on that team. So as you can imagine, the three teams from WPS and the Fury were essentially the top four. The New England Mutiny, uh, very well run. Uh, they were a solid fifth. The other three teams really struggled. Uh, but, you know, it was, they were decent games. It wasn't like it was all 
10 to nothing. I mean, you look at the Bundesliga in Germany or you look at, you know, the typical league game for Lyon in France, they might win 10 nothing. There were no 10 nothing scores in this league. The players in WPSL elite, you know, again, I mentioned Lori Kolevny. Kat Whitehill was at the, toward the end of her career. Uh, so was Leslie Osborne, her teammate. Uh, Allie Long was still kind of on the upswing, made the national team a bit later. Uh, Megan Klingenberg, still fairly young at the time. So those are all pretty legit players. And, you know, Heather O'Reilly, another player who was on the national team at the time. Now, if you're on the national team at the time, you know, 2012 was an Olympic year. So you weren't free for a lot of that time. So uh, O'Reilly only played a handful of games. Tobin Heath only played a handful of games, as did a couple of players in the other league. And I've just mentioned them, the W League, which was the USL's uh, women's league at the time. And Seattle just went nuts. They signed Hope Solo. They signed Alex Morgan. They signed Megan Rapinoe. They signed a young but dangerous Sydney LaRue. Uh, they had Keelan Winters, who was in the national team pool, Stephanie Cox, who was in the national team pool. And so uh, I'd actually urge you to look up on YouTube. This game is on YouTube in its entirety, and it's not a bad broadcast. Seattle versus the Colorado Rush. And you'll see there Lindsay Horan. Uh, that's it, her in her PSG outfit because she became, as far as anyone knows, the first player to jump from high school uh, straight to a major professional team. And she went to, she was supposed to go to North Carolina, but then PSG came calling. And so she actually skipped high school and went pro. Uh, the Kobe Bryant essentially every day. And uh, the Seattle game against the Colorado Rush was pretty good. Seattle obviously had way more talent, but Colorado made it interesting in Haran. Uh, you could see her talent there right away. And another national team player, I mean, obviously Solo and Morgan were only there some of the time for a few games. Becky Sauerbrunn, uh, still on the upswing of her career, uh, probably not. I maintain that Sauerbrunn was the best women's soccer defender of the 2010s. And, you know, she was showing it there uh, to an extent. She also scored a goal from the run of play for, for DC United women, which I believe is only the second time she's done that in her career. She uh, has scored She's only even scored one or two on uh, corner kicks or set pieces. And then Pally Blues, way over on the left there uh, with Lynn Williams, uh, they were mostly college players and actually a few who weren't like Whitney Engen, who was in the national team pool. But uh, Lynn Williams was a player who was at Pepperdine, not getting a ton of attention, but she came in and just tore it up for Pally Blues. So... So to close out here, this is the quote, or at least part of this quote, is on the um, is on the cover of the book. Uh, that's McCall Zerboni, uh, who had played in WPS. She then wound up with Western New York, and she decided to hang around in in Western New York when they dropped out of or when WPS folded, uh, because they kept going and gave her a place to train and then compete in WPSL Elite. She stayed there for another couple of years when Western New York moved into the NWSL. And so it was a bridge in sense for some organizations. The Chicago Red Stars are still playing today. Uh, the Western New York Flash, uh, whose owner, Joe Salen, actually uh, helped out some of the travel costs in WPSL Elite. They, the, the Salen family finally kind of pulled the plug on that, but they moved intact to North Carolina where they are the 
dominant team in NWSL the last few years, upset in the playoffs this year. Uh, but that's the North Carolina Courage. Uh, the Boston Breakers, unfortunately, not with us anymore. But it was a, a good bridge for organizations, and it was a great bridge for players. You know, um, Allie Long had was not yet in the national team picture at that point. And look at McCall Zerboni here. Uh, Zerboni is credited as and. You know, a lot of these records aren't necessarily complete, but we believe she is the oldest player to make her national team debut. October 2017, she was 30. And she says here that she would not have competed, or, she, or it was unlikely that she would have stayed in soccer. Because if you go back to the timeline, in fact, I will go back to the timeline, and you can see that that huge gap, five years, in this case, it was one year, and they actually had some professional soccer even in that year before a full-fledged league took root in 2013. And so if you hadn't had that, um, I maintain that perhaps the U.S. US women's soccer would have really declined without this. Perhaps the NWSL doesn't start in 2013. Perhaps it's not on as solid ground as it was. And perhaps women's soccer is just struggling as a professional league at that time. And perhaps you do you have another one of these, another lost generation. And if you have if you had lost that much talent uh, in 2012, does the US win the World Cup in 2015, 2019? I don't know. So you can see why this book I, I thought was an um, I thought was a good year to write about. And it was really a pleasure to do it. It's relatively short. It's about uh, 75 pages paperback, um, but I think it covers it pretty well and um, I've gotten good feedback on the people I interviewed uh, we're all pretty happy with it and I think it was a I get accused sometimes of being too negative about women's soccer I felt like this was a nice positive story to just show you know how resilient uh, women's soccer has been and uh, how much respect we should all have for the players who've been through this so happy to take any questions well, thank you so much, Bo. I, you know, I think what you offered us here in this presentation really shows sort of the underlying thought processes you went through to get to 2012 as this sort of bridged year, as you mentioned. And I think, it, you know, what you've offered here is a really valuable contribution, especially as you said, this is very much an oral history rather mm -hmm. than a more traditional book written on this. And, um, I guess one of my questions to you that, that came up as I was reading the book is, how do you think this can further our understanding or the ways that we present these histories to the public? That's a good question. Uh, I, I've always enjoyed reading oral histories. Uh, the, the huge one that's somewhere in these shelves behind me uh, was on Saturday Night Live um, by Tom Shales and talked with people from all generations of it and went more or less chronologically as, as this is. And yeah, I, so I, I always enjoyed it as a, as a reader, but um, I also found it just kind of fun to do. I actually took a class and I know I'm talking with a lot of PhDs and PhD candidates in here. I am a lowly master's degree holder, uh, but I did that at uh, Duke and I took an oral history class and really, enjoyed it. I, I think it's a good process. And yeah, as someone who has to go then and write it, sometimes I feel like when I'm writing all of these things, if it's predominantly quotes, 
especially. In this case, I wanted it to be predominantly quotes. I kind of wish the ratio of quotes to my text was higher than it was. Uh, but, you know, you can, when you're writing, you can find yourself trying to shoehorn in all of these quotes. And it makes for some awkward language sometimes. It's sort of like, uh, you know, it's blah, 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 White Hill said. Leslie Osborne agreed, blah, 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 blah. And so, you know, to write transitions between all those quotes, it, you're adding a lot of unnecessary words. So in this case where, you know, the ratio of quotes to my text was still pretty high. It's probably 50-50-ish. So, you know, and I had to do some explanatory text about, you know, what, what was going on. There's some things that I never quite got a full story on. For example, there was a game that was, um, let's see, it was the New York Fury uh, at Philadelphia on a Sunday. Uh, it was uh, stormed out. They had thunderstorms, and they were supposed to play the next day, and they never did. Um, I didn't get an answer as to what exactly happened in the standings. It's recorded as a win for New York. But Matt Driver said, told me that, oh, well, they couldn't uh, – New York didn't have enough players to play the next day. Okay, then why wasn't it a forfeit for New York? So <laughs> you have uh, things like that that went on that required as much explanation as, as I could give them. And there were you know, interesting things like there was a game forfeited because one player's paperwork was somehow tied up in Russia. And it doesn't even make a lot of sense. There were some players who played in Russia – during that offseason, one person that I would have loved to talk to but didn't was uh, Yao Averbush, who also played uh, in the W League at the time. And she w had played in WPS, went on to play in the WSL, was in the national team pool. Um, she was receptive to talking, but uh, we never got around to it um, because she has launched a business that's doing very well, Technic Football, uh, where she helps train uh, kids. Uh, she is, She's also the... I guess the past executive director of the NWSL Players Association. So you can imagine how busy she was with that as they tried to sort out uh, playing their month-long tournament in Utah, which went, which was a success. You know, a lot of credit to them. And knowing her, I'm sure she had a lot to do with that. So she had those two things, and she's pregnant. So I'll, I'll give Yael a little bit of a pass for for not talking to me for the for this book. Completely understandable. One last question I want to ask before we open this up to everybody here for questions is just quickly, it's, um, if I'm not mistaken, this was your first self-published effort in this regard. Um, I don't know if you've done other self-publishing before, but mo you know, most of your writing, most of your books have been published through traditional outlets. And what was the experience like in terms of, of getting this out and, you know, especially being able to do it in such a quick time frame as you were? Yeah, well, well, the books you've heard of uh, were published by traditional houses. Uh, I've done a couple of other. Uh, the, the book I did on the first season of The Washington Spirit uh, called Enduring Spirit, where I, I followed them around for a season, and th their 2013, their inaugural season, it wasn't particularly successful for a variety of reasons. One was not having the mark. Uh, the marketing push of the publisher behind it. Uh, one was the fact that the Spirit only won three games that year, and they didn't want people to, you know, they were not enthusiastic about having a record of that at the end. And then they were cooperative while I was doing it, but, you know, they weren't going to give it any sort of uh, marketing boost after the fact. And also, I don't think it was particularly successful because um, 
I don't know. And I don't, I don't mean to sound sexist here. Um, I think sometimes there's a, I, I think women tend to be a little bit more wary of people coming in and asking, uh, asking questions. Uh, and because, you know, you go back again to the fact that for my MLS book, oh, everybody wanted to talk. Um, for the spirit book, well, I, for this book that I just did 2012, you know, maybe, you know, 60% of the people wanted to talk uh, for, um, for the spirit book. I did interview everybody, but people, people were friendly to me, but not really talkative. And so I didn't get a really good story out of it. Uh, I also self-published a book on youth soccer called single digit soccer about coaching and about my experiences uh, dealing with, you know, U nine and below um, that went pretty well. Um, it, it's an okay book, but it's tough to market it because you're trying to market it to soccer parents who don't really know that they're soccer parents in a sense. Uh, so it's hard to, you know, place a Facebook ad targeting those people because, you know, the, uh, the people who talk about youth soccer, a lot of people who already know about it or think they know everything about it. So they're not going to read that book. Uh, I also self-published a memoir of my time covering mixed martial arts uh, at, as of now, it has sold zero copies. I'm actually kind of proud of that. I, I almost want to keep it at that. There are a couple of people who've read it. Um, Kindle, Amazon has some program called Kindle Unlimited where um, people can read for free. And so I've made probably 38 cents on that book so far. I'm really proud of that. Um, so the biggest problem with self-publishing is, you know, your own expenses. And because, um, you know, my MLS book, you know, I got it in advance and it, it made money for a while. I probably still do some royalties, but that publisher was bought out by the University of Nebraska Press. We had to hound them for royalties for a while. And at this point, it's probably far enough along that it, it's not enough money to, to go through that effort. Uh, Enduring Spirit, I lost money on that um, because I paid for my cover photo. I paid an editor and I racked up a lot of travel expenses and it only sold in the couple hundreds. Uh, so I did not get that money back. Um, Single digit soccer, uh, the cover photo is uh, my son's shoelace draped over a soccer ball uh, that I shot at our practice field when, uh, let, uh, when he was playing for a club, by the way, led by uh, Bill Hamid's father, Sully, uh, who is a tremendous guy. Um, so the cover photo was free. <laughs> the cover design was free. I did pay an editor. It was someone who didn't know anything about, it was former, I was a copy editor for a long time. And, uh, and this copy editor said, well, I don't know anything about soccer. I said, good, because that's the audience I'm writing for. Uh, that one I probably broke even on, did a little better. The MMA thing, yeah, I did pay an editor, but not much. I'm not too worried about that. Um, of course, with traditional publishers, I mean, not sure how much I should say about what is, uh, how things have gone uh, with you know that going through a traditional publisher, but I can tell you that um, you know I paid for a publicist and have I have not gotten the bang for the buck that I was hoping for out of that. So um, it's hard to tell. What's I was actually talking with a friend of mine today who has co-written a lot of athlete biographies. So you know that. I should tell everybody here, if you're looking for easy money, do that. Find a player who has a name uh, and, you know, 
I don't know the exact process, but let them go ahead and do that. In fact, when I pitched one of my books, I actually pitched it to someone who got back to me the next day. And I was like, wow, you must really like it. And they said, no, nah, I don't think soccer books are going to sell. But would you like to you know, co-write a book with the ex-girlfriend of one of the Eagles? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and he actually sent me a book that was written that his wife had co-written with uh, someone who dated Joe Walsh for about three years. <laughs> and I, I read it and thought, wow, this is – this is, uh, <laughs> boy, I, I, I could probably make money doing that, but I feel pretty dirty. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's amazing uh, where the money is in publishing these days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. It's like where the money is in TV. I mean, if, I mean, you could do a fantastic documentary, and unless you have like ESPN's marketing half behind it, you know, you're not going to make as much money as you could if you were, you know, um, well, it's just like journalists make a lot less money than people who go on television, both in news and sports and just yell, you know, yeah. with no, no knowledge of what they're talking about. Certainly. Well, let me open up the floor now to everybody. Um, if anybody has any questions, comments, uh, things they want to say about this book or just ask Bo generally, uh, please do so now. Uh, feel free to turn on your microphone and just go for it. I do want to see Steve's book about Matt Driver. <laughs> I look to the chat. Yeah, it's still laws about slander and defamation in this country. I need to be careful. Yeah. David, I see you unmuted. Yeah. Um, I, I, first of all, congratulations. Um, I think the format of the book and uh, what it chronicles, absolutely fascinating. Um, 2012 was a really, really interesting year in terms of the way things shook out uh, in terms of professional soccer. I know when I, I was uh, invited down to Soho to interview with the Cosmos, uh, the, the talk at that day was we were going to have a women's team too. We just needed to see how the whole dynamic shook out. And here we are uh, eight years later nearly, and uh, the Cosmos don't have a women's team and uh, – the, the professional league has evolved to the point it is. So it was really wild to be taken back on that time trip to that really <laughs> fascinating year. Um, but I wanted to connect the dots a little bit between this book and single digit soccer. Um, there are a few passages that really uh, stood out to me. Um, first of all, Schaefer, is that, I don't know if that's how you pronounce her name, um, but the line on page 19, I was meant to be a breaker. That really affected me. And, um, then that, I, I want to make a link between that, that sense of uh, institutional loyalty um, mm -hmm. and the kind of ambition and dream for a young girl and, and how continuity and sustainability of a club can play into that notion. Um, then how, you know, Ferrara and McCormick in particular are talking about um, pay to play as being a way of sustaining players, right? McCormick started and ran a soccer club and ran a showcase. Um, mm -hmm. And also, you know, the, the idea of uh, Colorado Rush, I don't know the whole history of the Rush organization, but um, I wondered if you could maybe connect the dots between this book and your other project, uh, which still, still seems to me an ongoing project for you, your engagement with the youth soccer landscape, and the way in which these two silos really maybe are more interconnected than we um, acknowledge, or maybe they should be, and also just this, you know, the, the idea of that Seattle Sounders team when they had all the stars there and in the idea of them being the Sounders as opposed to something else, the idea of it being the DC United women's team and 
just those notions of identity and the way that connects with pay to play at the youth landscape. I, I hope you can piece that together <laughs> as kind of a question, but to me, that was where this was really fascinating. Thanks. Sure. Well, I'll work backwards a little bit. Uh, the MLS, the MLS affiliations here were really loose. Uh, in DC United, it was almost as if they were, they just sort of, you know, handed them jerseys and said, okay, yeah, here you go, DC United. Um, I believe they were not able to keep that, um, not able to keep that going into the net sleep because of, I don't know, Adidas versus Nike or something like that. Um, so, but it, it was never that strong an affiliation to begin with. In fact, what's interesting now is that the spirit are starting to build up the relationship with DC United. Um, of course, the Spirit played two games at Audi Field uh, last season. They would have played, I think, five there this season. It's a heartbreaker that they did not because the Spirit is such a fun team to watch. Uh, good young attackers. It's a great atmosphere at Audi Field, and they weren't able to do it uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, and the Sounders women... Um, perhaps not as tight as I, the tightest one is the Portland Timbers and the Portland Thorns, uh, where the Thorns will easily draw 15,000 fans per game, you know, dwarfing the attendance at any other uh, women's team. And uh, it's really impressive how they interact. Uh, the Utah teams are also pretty good. Houston and Orlando, mm, not quite as strong. Uh, Seattle really embraced that team for a while and you know they would sort of refer to make reference to these players being sounders uh that team is now called sound fc you know so dissociated from the sounders which i think is a real shame uh when they had solo and morgan and so forth they could draw about 4500 players um and bear in mind the w league usually their attendances are in the you know if they're maybe the 300 range um and you know, D.C. United women drew a thousand a couple of times that season um, because they weren't a bad organization. And they had not just uh, Becky Sauerbrunn, but also a very young Andy Sullivan and also uh, Joanna Lohman, uh, who had a pretty good name for herself at the time, was working with and dating an English player named Leanne Sanderson. So that was a pretty good organization as well. Uh, to tie it back to youth soccer. In 2000, late 2010, I was out as a DC um, DMV resident. I was furious that no one stepped up to keep the Washington freedom in this area because I would look, you know, just a few miles away from me, McLean, McLean Youth Soccer. They have more money than God. You know, it's just. Um, I have I had a friend who played there and she, you know, I was talking with her and she was excited to tell me that her daughter had fouled, had, had fouled Dick Cheney's granddaughter. You know, that, that's, that has connections, that is money. They could have pulled together an ownership group out of that club and they didn't. And I don't understand why. So you have these occasional things where a youth soccer team will put up a senior level team. That was the Colorado Rush. Uh, and, you know, the Rush organization now has more locations than I can count. Um, it seems like a new one starts every day. I, at this point, I'm, I'm doing a club directory. I still don't know if Los Angeles Rush and California Rush are the same team uh, same or same collection of teams. I don't know. What do you call it? Is the whole organization a club? Is the Georgia Rush and the Colorado Rush in the same organization? I, I don't know. Um, of course, one of those mega clubs, GPS, fell apart. Uh, just a couple months ago, uh, 
under kind of scandalous and murky situations. And they actually had a partnership with Bayern Munich and Bayern Munich's comment was basically, huh? So, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like there should be more interplay. Um, there are some clubs that, you know, even without, even aside from the MLS Development Academy and, or that, well, now it's the MLS Academy. MLS used to require its teams to be in the Development Academy. And most NWSL clubs uh, have, have some sort of youth presence as well, uh, either in the ECNL or the Girls Academy League that just started, or they were in the DA. Um, you know, it, uh, the, the Utah teams have a presence in Arizona, actually. Um, and so they have Real Salt Lake, Arizona, and they have Utah Royals, Arizona. So there are some that are building there. And the Freedom had actually built in those years in between, without a full-fledged professional league, they actually had built relationships with youth clubs. Uh, so they were hopefully trying to get, trying to inspire you know, the top girls in those clubs, hey, maybe you can come play uh, for the Freedom one day, and, and Andy Sullivan did. Um, so, yeah, there, there, were, there were some from the bottom up, some from the top down, uh, outs, outside, of, um, outside of any conventional channels. I mean, and, you know, you, you know that the Cosmos had an academy as well, even though they weren't and they started that, I believe, before they were in the development academy. Uh, they already had uh, stuff in the youth ranks. Uh, well, that's complicated. Not not exactly. No. <laughs> right. That, that's that's a whole other sash session. Right. Yeah, it is. But you know, there. So there are some clubs that do their uh, FC Dallas, which has a great men's academy, also has a girls' academy, uh, which a couple of MLS organizations do. A couple of them, it's complicated. I mean, are you know, the NCFC, North, North Carolina FC and North Carolina Courage are in the same ownership group and the same uh, organization. They both have youth academies and it's hard to tell uh, how they're organized. So, yeah, I, I've been hoping for a long time that there would be sort of a top, you know, come from the top down and come from the bottom up. Um, I think top down seems to be working pretty well now. Uh, bottom up, it's still kind of... I'm still kind of surprised that that doesn't happen more often. Now, granted, uh, senior level teams don't make a lot of money. I mean, the joke is, you know, how do you, uh, you know, how do you run a soccer club and get a million dollars? The answer is start with two million. So uh, I guess a lot of youth clubs don't want to uh, make that investment. And of course, given what youth clubs are going through this year, it's not going to happen right now. Can I ask a tough follow-up? Because I'm told journalists are supposed to do that, right? Um, Absolutely. Uh, so the players, though, right? It seemed like um, some of the entities that you're looking at here, a, a handful of them, maybe a third or more, um, are actually being funded by the youth pay-to-play structure in one way or the other, whether it's the players directly. The idea There was the one quote where um, if you have four to five private lessons – um, than you're made. Um, yeah. I don't know how many other people have been on this call, but you know, when you get those approaches, like, will you give my kid private tutoring? And you know, it's it's a bit of a racket. Uh, so whether the racket is funding um, the the whole operation through uh, player fees, or whether the players themselves are are paying their rent, if not mortgage, by uh, doing coaching on the side. 
Um, it seems like, again, I know you're, you're very critical of the role pay to play is, is playing within the soccer landscape. And yet it seemed like for a lot of uh, people involved in 2012, um, that was how they were staying afloat. So do you have a sense of ambivalence about that? Or have you, have you again, are you making those connections yeah. between this project and, and your youth soccer project? It's a very good point. And, you know, one piece of credit you can give to Sunil Gulati is that uh, he will be blunt. He will be candid. And one of the things, if you asked him about pay to play, he would make the point, well, if you took all that money away, where's the money come from? You know, you may have a club that has uh, far reaching, you know, tons of travel teams uh, and a rec program uh, underneath that. And maybe they have something at kind of the development academy level or something like that that is either free or gives a ton of scholarship money. Okay, well, how does the club get that money to make that make those teams free or make the um, make the clubs um, or have them have a lot of financial aid to give? Um, and, you know, it's a tough question because, you know, how much sponsorship money can you have um, at any given time? You know, that's, that's kind of difficult. Uh, now, the, the, it, the main issue I have with pay to play is that there's a lot of wasted money, uh, particularly on travel. As I, you know, the, what I'm fond of saying is that no one became a better soccer player on an airplane or in a car. And you have all these different leagues and it, they're quite honestly set up by different egos where you can have two clubs, you can have a club here and a club there. They're 10 miles apart and a lot of their teams at the same skill level and they don't play each other because this one's going up here to play in the uh, club elite premier league. And this club's going down here because they're in the elite club premier, uh, you know, premier club elite league. And it's absurd. And so travel becomes a racket. A lot of the tournaments become a racket. And this is what these things are going to be interesting to see how they shake out uh, after COVID because, uh, you know, now a lot of teams aren't going to be traveling as much. Uh, I mean, you can't go to California. You know, California said, no, you saw, no, you sports for now. Uh, so, you know, they may find, well, maybe we'll need to play locally. Maybe they'll find, hey, you know what? it makes more sense to go play a game over here that's two to one rather than fly. I found an example of, I think, I think it was, um, it wasn't the earthquakes. It was another Bay area team that flew to Utah to play, not, not Real Salt Lake, but another Utah team flew to Utah. This is girls development Academy. You know, they win 10 to nothing and they fly back. What, what kind of player development is that? How's that help? You know, it doesn't help at all. Um, and so, there's the travel aspect of it and also – and, you know, I'm guilty of this. I, I sent, My son played three years of travel soccer, not at a high level. I wasn't expecting him to play in college. I, was, I wasn't even expecting him to make the high school team, which for a lot of travel players is – that's actually the goal uh, is to make the high school team, at least in this area where it's really difficult to make a high school team. Um, so because you look at what's in England and so forth and compare it to here, England has the free academies – uh, and, you know, close to 100 of them because, you know, there's some some league clubs that don't have full-fledged academies, but there are some in the conference and even below that who do. So close to 100 professional academies where it's free. Then you have recreational soccer, uh, which is very cheap. 
uh, usually coached by a parent, but there may be, you know, some, maybe a technical director who has some sort of experience and so forth. Um, and other, a lot of other countries like Iceland, we have been told about Iceland and why they're so successful is that it seems like every parent there has a B license. So, you know, they're not expecting to be paid big money for it here. You know, you have people, you have people who have a D license. Uh, in fact, I mean, I took a D, I took the D license class uh, for us soccer. There was a, a classmate of, first of all, one of my coaches, one of my son's coaches was in the class. And then there's some other guy who's running his own academy. He doesn't even have a deep license yet, so you have some dubiously qualified people out there coaching, and you and they're not better than parents. I mean, some coaches certainly are. Uh, you know, some professional coaches take it really seriously, but then uh, a lot of times you'd be better off with a parent. Now, to answer the question about training sessions, you know, again, you know, um, well, if you look at where the money goes and where it comes from, you know, so we've just been talking about how. Um, you take the travel out of it, you maybe take some of the coaches out of it, and you can cut down expenses that way. And still, you know, the money you're pulling in from recreational soccer, which, you know, the, recreational soccer is usually a pretty good deal. Um, you know, it's, it's not bad. And they'll offer financial aid for people who really, really need it. Uh, so that could still fund, you know, scholarship money for, you know, an elite team if, if this club has it. The other aspect of it is you can say, well, it does sound like a racket that, you know, these women get to, you know, go out and train some people and make enough money. But the flip side of it is the club doesn't have money to pay them. Uh, so, you know, in some cases they are an amateur club because they, they have NCAA eligible players on that team. So you get, and, you know, there are some really good players who played for not uh technically amateur clubs here. Uh, the New, New Jersey Wildcats, soon after the WSA, had Marinette Pichon, who was one of the leading scorers of the WSA from France, and they had one of the best players I've ever seen, Kelly Smith from England, uh, had her on the same team. And so, you know, they're not paying them. So how do they make money? Well, they coach and they get paid for it. So uh, it's, to go back to what Sunil Gulati said, uh, you can say, well, Perhaps that's not the most efficient way. Perhaps you're making parents pay money that they really shouldn't. But what do you do to replace it? I, I think that's interesting. I know Tom had a question as well. Let's have yeah. Tom go next. I'm going to sneak it in as we're coming up uh, on an hour here. Um, <laughs> I was just looking at my notes from uh, the Princeton Soccer Conference where I think Sunil Galati made one of his last public appearances before COVID. And on this topic, he says, quote, it is pay to play everywhere around the world. Someone has to pay. The question is who pays, end quote. So yeah. appropriate there. But here's my, my kind of mm -hmm. uh, question. Congratulations on the book um, again. Thanks. And thanks for joining us. You open up with that seminal event of the 1999 Women's World Cup. I was at Giant Stadium. My 22-year-old son was an infant and a baby Bjorn in the upper deck, uh, <laughs> tailgating beforehand. It was an amazing scene. You call that a high point. And in my notes, I have slash hubris, right? And, and, um, I think that's a really interesting moment in American soccer history and women's soccer history. You know, all this enthusiasm. You know, you say 
you know, women's soccer at that point is the NBA and the men's game is the WNBA. Uh, Jaree Longman said that. I didn't say oh, that. Jaree okay, Longman okay. said that. Yeah. And his book just got picked up for a Netflix movie. So good for right. him. So, so here's the, <laughs> the question. In 2012, again, we have this kind of club and country situation, right? The, the big tent of an Olympic Games, um, the day-to-day, week-to-week struggles of club soccer in this country. So, you know, could you comment on that kind of duality um, in particular with women's soccer, the, 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 I guess, tension between club and country um, and how one pushes the other uh, over the course of, you know, the late 20th century and on into the early 21st century. Thanks. Okay, so this is the part where I get to insult everyone who's on the women's national team right now, uh, which will be fun. Um, because essentially for a long time, especially during that during those dark ages, uh, the U.S. women's national team was a professional soccer club. And if you didn't make that coming out of college, you were basically done. You know, again, with the very rare exception like Lori Lindsay, uh, which is why I have tremendous respect for Lori Lindsay. Um, well, one of many reasons. She also was, I believe, the first prominent women's soccer player to come out. There are other people who claim it, she, but no, she was, she was ahead of them. Um, but so that team, there became a sense of, I hate to say entitlement, but it kind of is uh, because they were on contract and, you know, there, it was tough to compete for places on that team because you have people who are under contract. And that actually lasted until uh, 2016. Uh, oddly enough, the year that uh, they started um the complaint to the EEOC that became their lawsuit. Uh, they had a lot of players who were under contract. They still do, but fewer. And now there's not as much of a restriction as calling it of calling in players who are not under contract because through 2016, it was very difficult to bring people in to compete for spots. And I actually just wrote a story for soccer America. Uh, thanks for giving me an opportunity to plug it. Um, with, uh, I was looking back at the Tom Sermani, I'd say years, uh, 15 months really, where he was in charge. And he actually brought in about as many new players as he could. And the players denied that there was a player revolt. There was a player revolt. You know, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, the, the veteran players were not happy that it wasn't, you know, me starting with Alex Morgan, you know, every game, you know, ad infinitum. Um, because, you know, which, you know, you don't do that on a national team. I mean, if you're running the German national team, if, you, if you're Greg Berhalter and it's, you know, January and you have a friendly, are you going to run out the starting 11 that you, that's in your mind right then? No, you're going to run out a bunch of people who you want to get a look at. And, you know, Sermani was managing to do that a bit. Uh, the others were not. So, in terms of club versus country, yeah, there's that sense that we're on the national team. And people are, yeah, again, you look at the men's side, you, you can't always say, oh, well, so-and-so is on the national team. Well, they might be. The next time Burhalter calls people for World Cup qualifiers, maybe that person will get called in. Maybe not. Maybe that person gets called in in October, doesn't look too impressive, doesn't get called in in November, but gets called back in February. So you don't have a set group. 
uh, with the women, you know, there are a couple of players on the fringe, but generally there's a set group. You might only have, you know, 25, 28 players get capped in a given year. And what it creates, again, a little less so now because the, the new CBA as of 2017 is different. But what it creates is a cash system uh, where you have the national team players and those who are not. And if you look at some NWSL games, you may see players uh, immediately after a game, the national team players immediately like run and form their little group. You know, oh, this is us. This is us. Well, we're not we're not like them. We're, you know, I play with them in the club, but, you know, that, that they're not, they're different. And uh, they actually had a clause at one point in the CBA that uh, said that nobody could come in and make more money uh, off of the NWSL than they did because, you know, they had um, their national team salary and their NWSL salary, those um, subsidized by the Federation. And so they didn't want, I mean, let's say it was um, numbers off the top of my head. Let's say they're making 80,000 for the national team and 40,000 for NWSL. Then no one could come in and make more than 40,000 in the NWSL. It's called like a most favored player clause or something like that. So, the club versus country, I mean, players, of course, will deny it, but there, there is a split between national team players and those who are not on the national team. Uh, I always felt like referees gave a huge break in the NWSL to players who are on the national team. It's kind of like the Jordan rules uh, for, um, you know, for women's soccer. And you, you may notice that some players opted out of uh, the NWSL uh, tournament that they just had, you may notice that every player who opted out is a national team player who is collecting $100,000 from U.S. soccer right now and not playing. You know, they, they're secure. Uh, they have their spots on the national team and so forth. And, uh, you know, they could have opted out. And I believe they, any player could have opted out and still been paid somewhat, I, I think. I, I, I can't be sure of that. Um, but a lot of national team players didn't play. Everyone else came out and played and played hard. Thank you for coming, Oswaldo. Well, you know, I just want to give everybody an opportunity. We're at about an hour here. We originally talked about having this about an hour. Um, mm -hmm. If you're willing to stick around for a couple more questions and people have them, um, I'd sure. love to, to maintain that opportunity. But thank you to everybody who can only stay with us for an hour for tuning in. Um, we'll be here every first Friday. So uh, make sure to come back and check out our website at ussoccerhistory.org as we highlight more of these, you know, hidden histories of American soccer history. Um, thank you again, Bo. And uh, does anybody else have any last questions they'd like to throw out there? Actually, I do have one question. Um, sure. Well, I, I, Jeff Morgan, I, I live in Sandy. I, I'm, actually, I live in uh, Central Texas now. But I was mm -hmm. fortunate enough to live in San Diego back in the late 90s and early 2000s and uh, was at the Rose Bowl in the, the final in 99. Oh, boy. And, uh, and also got a chance to watch a fair number of San Diego Spirit games in the first year of, mm -hmm. uh, of WUSA. Um, and, uh, you know, having watched all the way through the NWSL uh, bubble that just happened here, and by the way, the Houston Dash winning it surprised people down here as much as it did everybody else. <laughs> they, but, it was, I don't want to say it was a fluke. They earned it, but they, it, it takes a little bit of luck to win a knockout tournament. They got a bit of luck. 
Yeah, and they but, and, but still, yeah. And, and I think to a great extent, you can probably attribute a lot of that to them not having any U.S. national team players. Um, it, yeah. it creates a dynamic in the team that was interesting. But I guess the the question I wanted to ask you was, with all the progress that's been made through the years, um, I I was a little taken aback when USL announced that they were going to now come up with a league of their own. Um, and just an editorial comment. I don't understand why we keep doing this to ourselves as a country. Um, but what do, you, what do you make of this? I mean, clearly they had, you know, Francisco Marcos had the foresight back in the 90s to, um, to create uh, a woman's, you know, league within the framework of what then was, you know, some version of USL. Um, but what do you make of USL doing it right now? What impact do you think that's going to have on, uh, on the, you know, the overall growth of women's soccer in the country? Well, this is a good time to, um, to plug my other book, uh, Why the U.S. Men Will Never Win the World Cup, because that's one of the features that uh, y you've all run into this, where uh, we keep running into each other. We, we, we aren't content. Uh, and the story I often tell is being at the, the organization then known as the NSCAA, their annual convention, the great thing. And I'm, I'm sorry I won't see you all in Anaheim uh, this year because they've, uh, they've gone all virtual. Um, understandably so. Uh, but I went to a presentation that was really packed with a couple of people from Germany. And one of the guys was asked, what's the biggest difference you see between German youth soccer and American youth soccer? He said, well, in American youth soccer, you have all these different organizations that are, you know, that are claiming to do this and that. In Germany, it went like this. So, yeah, I think for the USL to start its own, I, I don't understand the point. I don't see what they're trying to do. Um, it's funny because the U.S. The USL has always been such an odd organization, and they do so many things. It seems like they'll do something spectacularly right and then something spectacularly wrong. And it's good to give credit to Francisco Marcos. You're right for the W League because that sustained U.S. soccer in a lot of dark times. It it preceded the WUSA. I mean, it was there in you know the mid-90s and so forth. So it was an opportunity to play at a decent level. And you know, there was some decent soccer played there uh, in all those years. And when a professional league would come along, it would maybe grumble a bit, but it would accept that it's now essentially the second tier. And then it, when WUSA went away, it bat, you know, bounced back up. Uh, WPSL broke away from that. Um, I have to say that WPSL uh, a lot looser uh, than the W League. It's essentially, oh, you have a, a few thousand dollars and want to pay a fee? Yeah, okay, you can play. Um, so you'll have, you know, a pretty well, pretty good team like the New England Mutiny, which is a terrific organization, going up and playing, you know, some dude who has like one good high school player who surround who then fills out the rest of the team with whoever else he can find and uh then they go lose 10 nothing uh so um but that said jerry zanelli who ran wpsl uh recently passed away a uh, grand old man of the game and stepped up to do wpsl elite here um you know, you kind of wonder what would 2012 have been like if there was one organization and, you know, the Sounders who were playing the WPSL elite alongside everybody. And, you know, I asked uh, Charlie Namo, who was the coach of the New Jersey Wildcats back with, in the Kelly Smith, Marinette Pichon days, uh, was the longtime coach and general manager. Uh, he was actually the general manager of the Los Angeles Soul in WPS. And he ran Pally Blues, the team that had Lynn Williams and point the talent that ran through Pally Blues. 
uh, was just amazing. And you look at that team uh, that year. I mean, there was Ingen, uh, there was an Australian national, uh, there was an Italian national playing in goal. Uh, Sarah Huffman, uh, best known perhaps unfortunately as uh, Abby Wombatset's wife, but uh, you know, legitimate professional in her right. Uh, you know, so a really good team there. And yeah, they never got the chance to play WPSL Elite. So it's kind of like what we, what we talked about in travel soccer, where you have these teams that probably should be playing each other and aren't. So I'd be curious to know what USL's reasoning is uh, for getting into this. And of course, the funny thing is, perhaps the most prominent USL um, owner these days is Steve Malik in North Carolina. And guess what? He has an NWSL team a very, very good NWSL team that, uh, again, has dominated. In fact, they dominated the round robin, uh, the group stage uh, in Utah, and then um, the genius of Mark Parsons to somehow get the what was left of the Portland Thorns without Haran, with, well, no, Haran was in that game, but without Becky Sauerbrunn and a few other, and Tobin Heath and a few other players somehow got them to beat uh, North Carolina. So, I don't know. I my guess is that it won't actually happen. Do we have any other questions around? Um, any last thoughts that anybody wants to, to present while we still have Bo here? Thank you all for the opportunity. Uh, this, was, uh, this was such a fun project to do. I mean, it was a good way to kind of, um, you know, make the best of a bad situation. You know, I started working on it a little bit when I had my thankfully mild case of COVID. Um, you know, I caught it in mid-March before we understood that we were supposed to be wearing masks and so forth. So I got it out of the way, which was good. And also, supposedly, the risk of it gets worse when you uh, hit 50, and I caught it a couple of weeks before I turned 50. Uh, so I had an opportunity to, you know, do something when I was confined to the basement. And um, I'm glad that it turned out. I'm glad that you all have uh, taken an interest in it. So thanks so much. Certainly, yeah. Thank you uh, for everybody. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you. Um, for everybody that's watching after the fact, be sure to check out Bo Dewar's book, 2012. And thank you for tuning in. We'll be here with you all next month for our next First Friday session. 